welcome. My name is Gina Timberman, and you are listening to Timber People, a podcast about people who, like timber, are strong, build and create, who gather us together like fuel that feeds fire. People who support structures of our community that uplift and protect. Welcome to Timber People, my dear friend, J.D. Colbert. Uh, J.D., we've known each other a long time, and I'm so excited that we get to sit down and um, share about the book, share a little bit about you and your work, and connect today. This is what this podcast, Timber People, is really all about, along with the Possibilities podcast platform, is really building bridges and connecting community. And I'm really excited to just uh, dive in with you today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the invite, Gina. It's good to see you. As you said, we've known each other a long time. We haven't had a chance to visit a whole lot in recent years. So it's always great to see your beautiful smile. And uh, also excited to be here to talk about my book, and Between Two Fires, The Creek Murders, and the Birth of the Oil Capital of the World. Thank you, J.D. Thank you. J.D. Colbert is Muskogee Creek and Chickasaw, and we all have an opportunity in our career path to do many, many things. And I know that you have really drawn upon your background as a cultural person um, with your relationships in the community and the tribes to really inform your journey in your the professional world with Sage Advisors and your work in the banking industry and insurance. I want to talk a little bit about who you are and where you're from and how that has really informed what you've um, really accomplished professionally. Yeah, certainly, Gina. I grew up in Claremore, Oklahoma. I was the child of a single parent. My mother worked as a nurse's aide at the Claremore Indian Hospital. And that was a very impactful experience. I grew up around a lot of traditional full-blood people. And when I was growing up in Claremore in late 50s and early 60s, the Indian Hospital wasn't just a place of employment. It was really a community touchstone. There were a lot of picnics, family events, bowling leagues, softball. And combine that with my earliest memories of attending church at Claremore United Methodist, Indian Methodist Church. And added to that, of course, the traditional side, as you referred to, and growing up in and around the ceremonial grounds, what most people would call the stomp dance grounds. And it was the, that experience was informative as I look back in, in that as I came of age, I became aware of a great gulf economically between the Native community that I grew up in and other Native communities that I was fortunate to visit growing up, that economically there was a great divide between us and the dominant society. And somewhere, and I don't, I don't recall that there was a particular event or the proverbial road to Damascus experience, but at some point, I decided I wanted to go into banking, the control of capital, and that I, by doing that, learning the banking system, that I might be able to, in the future, influence and engender greater 
economic opportunities for Native people and to improve their quality of life. So that was a major takeaway from my early years. And I know that I've seen with your work and your advocacy for the work that you do that diversification is so important that especially in recent years with political climate, with economic realities on a global scale, that many people think of the economic development major tools, um, which, you know, oftentimes is true, is the gaming industry. I've heard you know, tr- great tribal leaders like Governor Anatoby and others say that, you know, gaming is just one means to the end. And that I know that you're a real proponent of diversification. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really happy you brought that up. I've been fortunate and blessed in my career to have gotten to know a lot of tribal leaders nationwide. And in, that included particularly a position I held in the mid 80s as a Assistant Secretary of Economic Development at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Even then, I was preaching the gospel of diversification of tribes generating non-gaming revenues. And so much to the point where in my informal discussions with tribal leaders, just sitting around visiting, that I have rather made it a point to see if I could influence them in tribal activities more toward non-gaming revenue development. Even to the point, I tell them, I say, well, you know, I wish there was a tribal leader who might one day boldly declare to his or her people that in, say, 10 years, we are going to create more non-gaming revenues than gaming. Right. Set that broad goal. And Kind of reminds me of John F. Kennedy in the early 60s, boldly declaring, "We will by the end of the decade, we will go put a man on the moon, returning safely to Earth. I think that vision has to come from the tribal leadership. And you set the vision, you set the goal, and then you leave it up to the employees, the people, to make it happen. And, and you're right, perhaps even that imperative is as important, if not more important today, then perhaps at any time in our recent tribal history, we witnessed during the pandemic, for example, the shutdown of all the casinos. And unfortunately, as you well know, right. there are a number of tribes that are wholly 100% dependent on their gaming revenues. So I think that should be kind of a clarion call to all of us natives, especially our native leadership, that we need to do more in the area of non-gaming income. Right. And sovereignty is so much a part of that. It's it is. that interconnected um, relationship with sovereignty. You know, we think about it just from, you know, the making our own laws, the inherent right to make our own laws and to be ruled by them. But also as you, it relates to economic development, to create our own avenues of economy yes. and to, to, to rule by those avenues in a self-sufficient, independent way which I think is, um, is really connected to sovereignty. Absolutely. And as you know, of course, in my role as banker and then pretty much, say, for the last 15 years when I've been doing consulting with tribes full time, I make that point about sovereignty. We need to look at sovereignty, not just in a legalistic sense, but what benefits does sovereignty bring us in the business sphere. 
And I tell tribes all the time, I said, as a result of you, tribe, owning some business, whatever it might be, it could be a bank, could be transportation company, whatever. It really doesn't matter. What does matter is when you buy that business, suddenly, immediately, there are unique competitive advantages that accrue to the tribe by virtue of its sovereignty that nobody else has. And that, in fact, many, many business owners would kill for. As an example, the non-taxability of the income of the business. Right. And you again, you're aware that, among other things, and especially the IRS has ruled through a series of revenue rulings that tribes that own businesses, whether on reservation or off reservation, regardless of where they're located, regardless of who they do business with, are exempt from federal and state taxation. That is a huge advantage. And I just haven't seen our tribes really mind that advantage to the extent I think it's available. Right. On reservation or on tribal lands or outside of tribal lands, I mean, tribes had the capacity and exercised it predating the U.S. Constitution to develop global relationships. And it's exciting to see what's happening today, but we've always had that capacity and and many exercised it. And it's really, it's just so cool to see what tribes are doing with intertribal trade and investment, what's happening in the aerospace and defense industry, um, what is on the horizon potentially um, in Oklahoma and outside of Oklahoma for insurance captive yes, companies. Yes, exactly. And that's one project I'm working on right now. I'm not at liberty to say which tribe, but we hope to establish what we believe would be the second uh, tribal captive insurance company. But more broadly, again, you're, you're correct. And I am heartened the tribes who are making major headway into developing non-gaving revenues. And again, as you know, Gina, you're an attorney, among other things, that uh, frequently those uh, entities are what, what we call Section 17 entities and charged with sallying forth and developing those non-gaming revenues. And the again, as you know, the, the, the number of tribes who have done that quite well, including, of course, my tribe, Chickasaw Nation, especially through Chickasaw Nation Industries, they are, as you kind of referred to, essentially a worldwide conglomerate right. now. Absolutely. Um, this is where relationships are so important. You know, uh, we talk about the four R's in our cultural projects, you know, responsibility, respect, that reciprocity, but relationships. And Indian country, while it spans, you know, North American continent, uh, Indian country is small. So the capacity to the opportunities to develop and sustain relationships personally, culturally, um, professionally are vast and we draw upon our histories. And I know that you draw upon your identity and family history in your professional life. And I know that you do as well in your personal life, in your connection to your tribe. I love that you're taking that knowledge of your past and weaving it into your experience presently and the expression of your writing. And I want to congratulate you on your success, the rave reviews, um, you know, the 
yeah, I mean, I'm so happy for you with the success of your book, Between Two Fires. And I want to talk a little bit about that and your vision and where that started. I want to explore how your experience, particularly with your Muscogee Creek culture and your family history, how that informed the development of this beautiful project. Thank you. Uh, and yes, I, I am very gratified at the immediate success of the book and its embracement, which obviously I expected across Indian country, but even more so outside of Indian country, how the story that I tell, which I'll get into a little deeper in a moment, but how it has also been embraced by the dominant society. It's, uh, it's been both uh, gratifying and I think a bit humbling. And I think, Gina, that I could say, and I think it's truthful to say that this book may be somewhat close to 50, 60 years in the making. And I say that because, as I mentioned earlier, gr growing up in a traditional full-blood community, at the time I did, coming of age, particularly, let's say, in the mid-60s, at that time, when I was young and was little, there were still a lot of original allottees alive. And these would have been individuals in their 70s into their 80s. And again, as you know, most of these allotments occurred here in um, the uh, Indian Territory, approximately in 1901, 1902. And so I was able and was told firsthand by the original allottees of stories of what had happened to them what had happened to their allotments, uh, all these issues that greatly affected Indian country of being shipped off to Indian boarding school, of not being able to speak their language, of the essentially the, the, well, the Indian guardianship system and how that was used to legally steal valuable mineral-rich allotments. Before we go, I want to touch on that because um, I really... As you know, we don't often learn about these realities historically in our school systems. Let's, if we could for a moment, talk a little bit about allotment policy, the federal policy yes. that was a real policy of yes. kill the Indian, save the man. Absolutely. And of our U.S. federal government in, um, in recent times, if you look at the big picture, and what that meant um, for the, you know, the goals of the Dawes Commission. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that as a foundation for the realities that you express creatively, realistically in the book. Thank you. Well, and again, as you know, Gina, prior to um, approximately 1900, we'll just use that as a date, in eastern Oklahoma, the former Indian Territory, there was no such thing as private ownership of land. Uh, because each tribe, each of the big five, they owned the land communally. And I think it was a beautiful way of life. I, I know amongst the Creek people that uh, Creek Nation owned about three million acres of land. And if you were a tribal citizen, you could go anywhere in that three million uh, acres of land and build you a log cabin, plant a garden, plant fruit trees, uh, live off the land, basically. And while you didn't technically have a talking paper called a warranty deed, 
the tribe recognized your right of occupancy, even to the point you could pass that those improvements on that property down through the generations. And then, of course, there was the notion of the forced allotment, which was a product of the federal policy of assimilation, as you mentioned, kill the Indian, save the man, and that this policy that uh, came out of that imperative of land allotment was very much, of course, joined at the hip of assimilation, which we also know related was the forced uh, compulsory attendance at Indian boarding school, strip us of our heritage and our culture and our language. So, uh, and and the, the, the allotment policy was proposed as something that the great white father in D.C. was doing on our behalf. Right. We didn't know any better, and we're doing these these folks a favor. Uh, that was the PR spin that they put on it, and unfortunately, a lot of non-natives believe that. The guardian to the ward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And But in reality, we also know there was a very, very dark side to that policy, which was the theft of the tribal lands and the allotted lands. And... We did have some non-native folks who saw what was happening, who wrote about it, who opposed it, because they knew what this was about. And parenthetically, amongst the Muscogee Creek, this allotment policy had happened in the early 1800s in our homelands of Georgia and Alabama. It was then a well-documented failure. And so anybody with half a brain would know where this policy was going to end. And in fact, one statistic that I throw out frequently is among the big five tribes in the former Indian Territory, the Dawes Commission overall did about 101,000 allotments. And within 10 years, 80% of that land base, uh, which is approximately 40 million acres, there was a total of about 50 million acres that had been allotted, about 40 million acres had passed out of Native ownership into white hands. So this was systematic. This right. was planned. Right. And I think that's the part of the history that we all need to face up to, especially the dominant society of exactly what happened. I appreciate you telling this story through... Um, this incredible book, um, and I know that you draw upon life experiences, uh, stories. You're an excellent storyteller. Mm, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about the characters and the inspiration for the characters. Okay. And, which, by the way, Gina, you know me, the the male protagonist, Sam Davis. <laughs> Many of my close friends say, you know, I see a lot of you in this character, right? J.D. <laughs> I can't deny it. I, I kind of gave birth to Sam Davis, so I suppose I have to take responsibility for that. But the two protagonists, the male protagonist, Sam Davis, historically a Creek half-breed, and the female protagonist, Zitkala, who was Lakota, uh, they, of course, lived in real time back in the day. The uh, Sam Davis, the historic Sam Davis, I'm sorry to say, I've researched his life extensively. And I simply could not find any redeeming value in him or his life. 
he his name is on thousands of documents related to land, land sales, guardianship, and it's clear that he made a lot of money uh, from selling out his tribes people. At the end of the day, the historic Sam Davis, what's the old saying? Uh, karma comes knocking. <laughs> he was killed in the bedroom of his mistress in Joplin, Missouri, a week before Christmas in 1916. And his murder was never solved. There was never anyone arrested. There was never anybody identified as a person of interest. One of the key outcomes from that it was that with Sam Davis, before he died, he was a guardian of three Muscogee Creek miners who stood to inherit the lands where the gathering place is, which right. is the name of the popular worldwide tourism. Right. And, and, you know, those Tulsans were all proud of it. It's a great park, but it's got a very dark history. And after Sam Davis was killed, this, strangely, his brother-in-law, uh, Dr. Bland was appointed as guardian over those kids. And within two months after being appointed guardian, he managed to affect a guardianship sale of the land to two of his country club buddies, despite the fact that the oldest uh, um, board, uh, Lucinda Hickory, she has testimony. I have a copy of her testimony. It's very, very moving. And Lucinda mentioned that she was a 15-year-old and that she'd been put by her guardian, Dr. Bland, into a convent in Purcell, and her sisters, and that her youngest sibling, a young brother, had been forced to live with somebody in Broken Arrow. And probably the most moving part of her testimony, she said that her mother had died a couple of years before, and she said it was my, mo my mother's dying wish that this land remained in the family. And so I beg you, Judge, don't sell this land. We want to hold on to it. Well, that was plea was ignored, as you might imagine. The land sold for 52000 and the family never received a dime, the wards. And I know this because little Luce, uh, Luina Hickory, who testified, she has a daughter who's still alive today. And I've been very fortunate and very blessed to have met the daughter and she told me this firsthand. I love how you seek the experience and learn and then turn and share it with us um, in your words and in your book. And when did you start writing the book? So interestingly, well, first I had done a number of presentations about the historic Sam Davis. And many people would come up to me afterwards and say, hey, J.D., you need to write a book. Yeah, so eventually I'm like, well, okay. I've never written a book before. Right. But I did stay at a Holiday Inn last night, so I think <laughs> <laughs> I think I can do this. Right, right. But interesting, I'm not even sure why I did this. I originally wrote a screenplay instead of a book. And that was informative in that when I wrote the screenplay, I endeavored to hew too closely to the historic Sam Davis not surprisingly, the people who read my screenplay hated him. Well, I kind of hated him too, so <laughs> that wasn't a surprise. So then I decided, well, I'll write a book, but I'm going to have to radically change Sam. Right. Try to have some historical basis, of course, because my book is under the genre of historical fiction. But uh, I gave him some redeeming qualities. And so I started writing the book uh, 
guess it was the fall of uh, 2021. It's a little over a year ago. Because I, have, I had such a wealth of knowledge about that time frame, about him, about the historical characters, about the things that happened, it really only took me maybe two months to write the book. And it, 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 the story just flowed. I never had any sense of writer's block. Mm. I would sit down at designated times, generally from like 9 in the morning to 11, shut off my phone, turn off the computer so I'm not dealing with emails and just sit there and write. And it, it almost seems like I was channeling the story yeah. uh, from my and our ancestors. All that I'd learned many, many years ago just kind of flowed right out through my fingertips and onto the keyboard. Oh, that's incredible. You know, what was happening around that time was a whirlwind of conflict, of survival, greed, um, you know, Native people clinging to um, and doing everything they could to protect their traditional ways of life, yes. life ways, yes. um, in a new way of operating mm -hmm. in, um, you know, what was to be Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting that you take those realities and apply them to an experience that everyone can learn. Mm -hmm. Like I said, you know, we didn't have that gift of learning these mm -hmm. stories while we were in school. Mm -hmm. I think the world would be much better yes. uh, if if we all knew the realities and uh, and understood them for what they were so we wouldn't repeat them again. Yes. And, you know, that's what I tried to portray in my book from the Native side through a red lens is, as you referred to, this cataclysmic change that especially that generation that was Native generation that was living into the turn of the 20th century, among other things. And this may be fun, very, very fundamental is, for example, in the Muscogee Creek language, there is no word for owning the land. Right. If anything, the land owns us. <laughs> so how do you impart that concept to traditional people? Like, oh, here's a document and this means you own the land. Like, I can't own the land. You might as well say, you know, I, I can own uh, 100 cubic feet of space on the other side right. of the moon. I mean, just was, it was foreign. It was ridiculous to them. Land is a commodity. It's the difference between the language of earth versus land. Yes, you know, exactly. One is, you know, connected to us in a way that's inseparable, um, and the other is a, you know, a commodity. Right, exactly. And so there were these... Um, weird concepts that our native forebears had to deal with that they simply had no comprehension right. of how that even could be. Right. Now that this book is complete, and I love the cover oh, artwork and everything as well, and I know that you're working on um, an audio book yes. as well. What else is on the horizon for your writing? So I believe that be, because uh, there's so much more that I couldn't tell right. of what had happened that I, I've rather decided to make a series out of this book. This one, of course, be, will be the first one. And I, what I want to do is delve into more of the major policies that were shoved down the throats of our ancestors. Uh, for example, the 
the notion of guardians and wards. Right. I'm, I have a working title for my next book called like uh, uh, Greedy Guardians, Wealthy Wards with some subtitle I haven't worked <laughs> out just yet. But yeah, there's, there's a, a great deal of material to work with. And I think you referred to this earlier, the cataclysmic change wrought upon our people a great deal of it happened from in a very, very short period of time. Let's just say roughly 1895 to 1905. In 10 years, what had existed here in the former Indian Territory was uprooted and turned on its head. And so I want to delve into that uh, deeper and explore those themes of the Indian guardianship system, the legalized theft of allotments. Uh, I think another treatise that would uh, merit a lot of attention would be simply the Indian boarding school experience. Uh, All of these things were, as you said earlier, were coming to bear uh, one right on top of of another uh, for our ancestors. So uh, I sense that there is no shortage of stories to tell and material to use. Right. Nahala ways, uh, native days, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, before we wrap up, I know, and anyone who knows you knows, that you're a hat man. You're a man <laughs> of style, and you have an incredible hat on today. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I want to ask you, is there a hat that you um, is connected to a real— I know you have a story for uh, every, probably every time you wear a hat, every day. But uh, is there one particular story that connects you to one of your— incredible hats. (laughs) Yes, I have uh, one. I I think it's uh, called kind of like a a bolo and the the bead is beaded, a creek beater out of uh, Glenpool uh, beaded that for me. And uh, that was influenced by um, photographs I had seen of, um, again, our ancestors generally going back I guess approximately 100 years. And so by wearing that hat and others that I have, either with a beaded half band or the bead bead on the brim of the hat, I endeavored to kind of pay homage to our people and kind of replicate their style, their manner of dressing, albeit, yes, with a little more flash and panache, I suppose. <laughs> but that's Isn't just panache me. That's, your middle that's, name? That's, <laughs> J.D. Panache Colbert? Thank you, yes. <laughs> and as you rightly point out, I think my hats have rather become my, my calling card, if not my brand. I love it. I love it. Well, J.D. Colbert, thank you so much. Mado, mm. uh, pick up your book today on Amazon, Between Two Fires. It has been such an honor and a pleasure visiting with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gina. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Again, thank you for the invite. Yakuki. Nga, Mado. Yakuki, thank you for joining us. Timber People is brought to you by the Possibilities Podcast Platform.